Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, Episode 7. Basically having some formal practice time where you're not in a crisis, where you're not trying to use your skills at the same time as learning your skills. That's what meditation is for. It's like experiential practice time of, of that particular way of paying attention. But meditation's not the end-all be-all because what you, what you want is for this to serve you as you're living your life. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're doing well. Uh, we have got a great show for you today. And we cover one of those things that for most people probably falls underneath the category of, I would do that if I had more hours in the day. <laughs> How many things do we put in underneath that column, right? Today, I sit down with Stacy Mandel, and we talk about some of the benefits coming out of the research of mindfulness and meditation practices. And her work specifically focuses on children and students. And when I was growing up, I think meditation and mindfulness kind of had this negative hippie <laughs> connotation, right? Like the word meditation kind of just brought to mind a person who walks barefoot and wears tie-dye t-shirts and red bandanas, <laughs> right? But uh, Stacy shares with us today that the research in the last decade or so has absolutely exploded to give us scientific proof of some of the benefits, particularly how practicing mindfulness can physically change our brain to actually help us navigate the stresses and busyness of our lives. And Stacy argues that the earlier kids learn these skills, things like uh, the ability to control our emotions better, the ability to focus on tasks better, the ability to reduce stress and anxiety, the earlier students learn those skills the better off they'll be and the better off everyone else in their education journey is going to be, right? So she didn't mention this in the interview, but I want to make sure that I give her a quick shout out. If you are at all curious about implementing some of these strategies, either on for yourself or for your teaching, Stacy is actually offering free 20-minute mindfulness sessions over Zoom throughout uh, this coronavirus pandemic, at least at the time of this recording. Uh, she hosts a children's session at 9.30 in the morning, an adult session at 1 p.m., Monday through Friday for the foreseeable future. So if you're at all curious, we will make sure that you can easily find a link to that by going to our show notes page, as well as everything else we talk about on this episode. You can find that at jabadoo.com slash show seven. And as a quick side note, if you haven't already joined our Facebook group, this is where not only I am able to connect w directly with listeners, but also where you are able to find like-minded teachers and start to advance the practice of implementing evidence-based research into your teaching. So we would love to have you join our conversation. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo, or once again, just go to our show notes page. We have a link to our group there. Now, let's bring on Stacy Mandel. Stacey Mandel, welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks for making the time in our busy schedule to 
meet up and, and chat about uh, all of the stuff that you're doing. Mm-hmm. The pleasure is mine. Awesome. So uh, the place that I always like to start, because I think it's the best place to start a story, is the beginning. So can you just tell us, let us know, um, who was Stacey Mandel, the student? Uh, what were some of your interests? What was your experience in school coming through? Um, what's your story? So uh, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, uh, South Jersey, and um, I was really, as a student, able to excel in that particular system. I had, you know, a sharp intelligence supported by good executive functioning skills as a, as a young person. Um, I knew how to to do what was asked of me. I knew how to follow the rules, and so I achieved well in terms of grades, which is at least then that was the main way to to define ourselves as a student was sure. how were we achieving in terms of grades um, I was nurtured by a real loving family and I had all of my basic needs met um, and in addition you know went above and beyond those basic needs and um, was actually really showered with extra resources too so in school I was I had a lot of opportunities for additional stimulation um, space for growth I had create creative opportunities. Um, I was able to challenge myself. I got relearning opportunities, reteaching when needed, um, abilities to collaborate with others. And then out of school, that's what my parents uh, made it their mission to, to focus on was how to, everything was about how to support um, their children. So I was really fortunate and really was given a lot of gifts um, and was really supported by a whole infrastructure um, to be a high achieving student. Okay. Yeah. So you said Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So I'm, I'm just not familiar with it. Is, is that a pretty decent school district? There's a lot of opportunities there. Um, or how much of your experience yeah. do you think was fostered by the district versus fostered by your family structure? I think both. I think that Cherry Hill school district is a district still to this day. They have a lot of blue ribbon schools. So they're nationally acclaimed, they have financial resources and that's a chicken and the egg kind of thing about, you know, yeah. taxpayers paying into the school, you know, for the school district, school district serving the, the residents, mm-hmm. et cetera, but loving families with good stable incomes, middle to upper class uh, in terms of economics, fairly homogeneous uh, in terms of race, um, in terms of socioeconomic level and there were homogeneous uh, expectations as well, namely just everyone's going to college, sure. um, college, college, college. Yep. <laughs> that was not just the key for school, but I think was really the main focus key for life. That if you you know went to college and went to a good college, you would then get a good job, and that would be the key to you know supporting your family and perpetuating what you were given. So that that was, that's, that was the system. Yeah. And that's a, uh, a common system across our country Mm -hmm. and across our culture. Um, even to this day. Um, so, okay. So getting out of high school then and and going to college, uh, did you go to college? Where did you go? What did you study? Uh, how did you get interested in it? Despite doing well in that system and term, you know, on paper Mm -hmm. and getting into many colleges and achieving well in terms of scores. There was always this little just nagging feeling inside of me that I wanted something different than that system. I think I was just a curious person and just also never felt like I really 
uh, I, I didn't feel like it was all for me. Like I just always felt like maybe there's something different. Maybe there's something better. So I, I actually ended up at NYU, New York University, Tisch School of the Arts for screenwriting. So in, oh. um, in dramatic writing and writing focusing specifically on film, you know, movies to me were always magical as a kid, like yeah. seeing a story on a big screen and just being totally, you know, taken in and escaping all kinds of genres too. I was like, that's magic. And um, I think I can do that. I can, I can, I can make that happen. And I would just kill to be able to, to do that. So that's why I went to NYU um, and pursued, pursued that, that line of study. Yeah, it's definitely an alluring uh, line of work to, to be in and be involved in these movies, the, the grandeur that's, that surrounds them. Because I had the same, I had the same pull. I was a huge, I still am a huge John Williams fan who wrote countless scores for many of the popular movies. So at one point I had considered a, a film score uh, career. So I, I mm-hmm. totally understand, understand that pull. <laughs> and I also want to just say, like, there's nothing wrong with this, but it's worth pointing out that when I made that decision to apply to NYU, and I really, I didn't even bother. I knew I was not going to even, I applied to those other schools because that was the system I was in. My mm-hmm. guidance counselors made me, my parents made me, but I knew I was always going to NYU and I only wanted to go to <laughs> NYU for this. But I was only like, what, 15 or 16 when I made that decision to apply there and to go yeah. there and I applied early decision and I was still a kid. Yep. And it just mm-hmm. shows us like we're kids making very grown up expensive decisions <laughs> because yeah, and what, what and I do now is very different decision. from, from that degree, you know? Yeah. So went to NYU. Um, what happened next? <laughs> Well, long story, many stories later, um, sure. to keep it short for this, I'd say um, that is actually, that's where I started to, to notice even more that I still was not, even in that different system, I still was not like wanting the choices afforded to me even in that system. I was still yearning for more, yearning for different, not quite able to do it the way I was supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was more aware of that because I was now I'm older and there's more, you know, repeating patterns. I ended up graduating from NYU a semester early to go to LA. I convinced my parents, you know, I've got to really go out to Los Angeles and see what the film industry is like out there. Cause that's the real yep. <laughs> film in that time. There really was, everything was out there. There weren't as many independent um, film studios, um, it was just big, big, you know, production yeah. houses out in LA. And so I graduated early and just went out there. And that was a real quick decision. And as soon as I got to LA, a week later, there was a big earthquake. This is the earthquake of 1994. Um, yeah. And it just rocked everybody's world, literally and metaphorically. All of my contacts from my internships in New York and so on and so forth kind of went by the wayside. Nobody was really. Uh, prioritized on helping me get a job. Um, And so I became assistants for everybody, you know, production assistants, you know, administrative assistants, worked for in an agency, a big talent agency as somebody's secretary. And that didn't go so well because I'm not a particularly good assistant. (laughs) I have my own system and way of thriving, but I wasn't good at doing it the way, exactly the way somebody else wanted me to do it. And I was young Mm-hmm. And my skin was not tough enough. And I took things very personally um, and found it very, very hard. Um, and 
I was just so focused on doing my job so perfectly <laughs> to not get in trouble or not get fired um, that I, that I kind of lost the whole meaning of it, like what I was doing. And I became pretty disenchanted. Um, and that's about the time too, when I started to coincidentally or not explore mindfulness. All right. And perfect segue. Yeah. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> that was. I wonderful. told you it could have been a really long story or lots and lots <laughs> of little stories in there. Yeah. Um, and I'll, before we get into mindful, I'll just touch on one thing. Uh, just the, you know, the, uh, that story is, is so common, at least, you know, uh, in, in the media, just going out to LA and, and trying to work your tail off. And I, I think part, partly what that is, is you've got these really creative people who love to create, you know, either uh, stories or art or music. And they, you know, you go out there and the only jobs available in that industry are very task oriented jobs. There's not a whole lot of creation going. Do you feel like that's maybe part of what happened? Well, the way I did it, for sure. And the way I did it, like if you've ever seen Entourage, remember I that HBO actually. series with Lloyd on Ari's desk? I was Lloyd. Like I'd literally be in the bathroom every other day with the other girls crying because my bosses were literally screaming at me <laughs> if I didn't do the task exactly right. Yeah. So for me, yeah, I, I would agree with you. It was like my, I wasn't fitting into the box. So I kind of thought I didn't fit. And it was like yeah. hard to fit into that box for me. Yeah. Okay. So you came upon mindfulness. Yeah. That was through some people I was living with, some roommates. Um, they were reading all kinds of books, all different types of religions and contemplative practices and exploring different retreats and centers, um, ways to meditate. And I started coming along and uh, my first mindfulness experience um, experiences were at Zen Buddhist retreats. And these were silent retreats. <laughs> so you'd go for a weekend and there'd be no instruction there be no talking, just periods of sitting, long periods of sitting and long periods of walking meditation. Okay. And I kind of through osmosis and by watching other people gathered, you know, what the system was mm -hmm. and was able to, um, was able to, to like achieve in that I was able to do it. I was able to, to last through the sitting and the walking meditations and actually, over time, liked it and was welcoming it and wanted to do more. But I didn't have any understanding of what I was doing. <laughs> Aside from talking about it with my roommates and reading a little bit, like I really didn't have any actual teaching. There was, you know, there's no instruction to guide me, um, to take my questions, um, and to be able to offer like, you know, mentored experience. Sure. So... I mean, and that's, and that's just dump, jumping two feet into the deep end to go to a, was, it was a full weekend of. I did several full weekends of those. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I've, I've experimented with like 10 minute segments and that's about it. About yeah. Well, me. that wasn't an option. So this was the option. Yeah. This is what my friends were doing. So that's what I did. Yeah. Probably again, me trying to fit into a box that wasn't exactly my box, but there was something about it that I knew like there was room here for some possibility mm. um, because this was so different. This was so different. Um, and, and it was so not doing or not trying mm -hmm. to do something specific that just in that open 
freedom, that possibility of nothing. I, I felt like there was a lot possible, I think. Um, and then that led, led me to yoga. Mm -hmm. I forget how, but finding a yoga class and then that yoga teacher and I started to work one-on-one. -on -one. And this was a Hindu gentleman from India. And he was teaching me yoga one-on-one -on -one and then teaching me meditation with a mantra. Okay. So we went from Zen Buddhism to Hindu, more mantra-based meditation. Okay. And this is uh, from, from the research that I've done, um, the, the concept of meditating and just being uh, in, in the moment, right? It's, um, it basically it came out of India for the most part, from what we can tell, right? A lot of uh, between uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, it's, it's ingrained in those uh, religions. So how do you know, how did it get from India to now? Like the whole world is at least yeah. <laughs> from my, my understanding, the whole world kind of now understands some of the benefits of this meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. Great point to bring out. Um, this was mostly in the East, you know, as Eastern traditions and religions mm -hmm. and cultures is where mindfulness has always been. So thousands of years back and then making its way to the west to the western part of the world in a more secular universal way the main the main person responsible um who had the most influence in this is john kabat-zinn okay so if you heard of him at all i had not no yeah so john kabat-zinn is um a professor and a doctor at university of massachusetts medical center and he studied for years for decades with Buddhist teachers like Titnan Han, for example. And he studied in Asia and he practiced meditation and he also received teachings. And he basically um, felt like what he was learning was not limited to a particular religion or tradition. It had a lot of universal psychological concept to it. And he took his background in psychology and psychiatry and, and developed a curriculum where he wove in these Buddhist-based teachings and ideas and created something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, which hmm. is now called MBSR. And that is actually a very standardized program. And it's at all, most of our hospitals. So it's mainly in healthcare settings, teaching universities, um, clinics, what have you. I mean, from what I understand from people that know him, you know, he, he knew that mindfulness could be about much more than, than stress reduction. Sure. But to have people open to exploring it, he wasn't going to call it, you know, all those, all those things he could have called it, mm -hmm. you know, enlightenment or, you know, waking up or, you know, you know, paying attention of, to our true nature, sitting in our essence or, you know, yeah. I mean, I could go on. It means different things to different people. You could define mindfulness, you know, and you look it up and Google it. It means a lot of different things, but his basic definition for MBSR purposes is just paying attention to the present moment, like you said, mm -hmm. in a non-judgmental manner with mm. kindness. So with acceptance and with curiosity. So again, it can mean a lot more than that, but he's really the biggest influence. And then, you know, something later called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy took root after that, and then so on and so forth until there are variations of this MBSR program. 
Um, but he was really the one he's considered the father of mindfulness Hmm. because he really brought it to the West in this universally accepted and like, um, not just accepted, but acceptable way in terms of, you know, his books, he's written numerous books, one of them called full catastrophe living, you know, he presents the body. And, um, like I did a, um, a practicum in mindfulness based stress reduction at Jefferson and, you know, we went through the body based on his his teachings about real, literally the you know the stress response and how one way the stress goes into the body um, and how without mindfulness it triggers a whole chain of reactions that are physiological, um, leading all the way to breakdown, okay. you know, or disorders or addictions and or death, and then the other way if we use this mindful, non-judgmental appraisal of what's going on in our bodies, how that regulates a whole variety of body systems and can lead to well-being. Yeah. So it's well, very, yeah. What was the title of that again? Well, that, uh, he, one of his best known books is called Full Catastrophe Living. Okay. And you can find that information um, in that book. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. because that, that, You can also Google it. Okay. <laughs> it'll come and it'll come right up. So you don't even need to get the book. You can just find, find it everywhere. Yeah. The book is like this thick. <laughs> oh, heavens. <laughs> okay. No, it is. And it's very medical. Okay. Gotcha. Terminology. Not, not totally like layman. Like I, I was assigned to read the book and I don't, I don't have any experience in medicine and mm-hmm. I could read it and understand it, but it's yeah. thick. It is thick. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not then. I just, the, uh, the way you were explaining it, how <laughs> you could borrow my copy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, but the, you know, we, we deal with stress every day on, on different levels. Um, and the way we deal with stress varies by person, right? And I, I personally know that my stress is always in my shoulders. Like, I just know that that's, if, if I'm stressed out, my shoulders are hurting. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, kind of. I mean, first of all, the shoulders are a common area for us to hold tension. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and it might start with the shoulders and then it might not end there. So for example, if you're feeling stress, let's say you're feeling pressure and agitation and you notice, you know, you know, your shoulders tend to hold that tension. If you're clenching your shoulders and not realizing it or holding your neck at a certain angle, or you have a certain posture in your seat, that could lead to another difficulty that's physical like spasm, muscle spasm, neck spasm. Let's just say I'm, again, I'm not a physical therapist, but there, you know, a lot of things could actually happen just from that maladjustment. Sure. Now let's say that spasm gets really painful one day or it's there, but not that painful until you're actually doing an exercise, a very specific exercise in the gym or out of the gym that triggers it. And suddenly it's inflamed because it was already, it was already, Stress. Agitated, yeah. It was already yeah. agitated. Then you've got an acute situation. And if you don't get relief from it, and or your insurance doesn't cover whoever you need to go to, or there's a waiting, there's a line, you know, that yeah, they can't take you right away for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And you're not getting relief and you're also worrying about it. So you've got the initial problem and then you're adding to it because you're concerned, rightfully so, sure. and worrying yeah. about it he kind of outlines how that snowballs and leads to a chain reaction and could actually lead to all types of coping mechanisms, which are not healthy sure. 
either, which are based upon that original dysfunction. Sure. Yeah. And that, that all like, as you're walking through that, I'm going, yep, that makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, so I think, I don't think I'm alone when I say everybody kind of is starting to understand now that meditation and mindfulness are, are beneficial for us in, in a bunch of different areas like stress reduction, um, anxiety reduction, Mm -hmm. um, all these different things. So uh, I just want to, I want to transition a little bit and see if we can talk on uh, some of the neurological things that are going on. Um, because that's, that's where my brain, that's where I'm always interested in is, is what's the actual science behind a lot of this stuff. So um, you have on your, on your website, a couple of different links. I was able to go through a couple of them. Um, and uh, just the neurophysiological changes that happen in your brain are really pretty cool. Um, just from, uh, and it's, again, it's not just one session of meditation, it's over time. Um, but well, actually, I have a research piece that I wrote down to talk about if we get to it, where it was actually one time. It was just one session. No just kidding. came out in March. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, let's do that right now. Well, that's, then. <laughs> well, that's just, um, I knew you were going to ask me something like, you know, how long do you have to practice for before you see results? <laughs> you know, and that's, that's like a pretty standard question. And um, that answer has changed over time um, because, because we've, we've been doing studies and growing the amount of studies of publications over the last 25, it's actually, I wrote down too for, for reference, um, just the journal publications, just to give you an idea of where we've come from. In 1995, there were four journal publications on studies of mindfulness and the benefits of mindfulness. Okay. All right. And then in 2000, there were about 10. And in 2018, that went from 10 all the way up to 883. Wow. And then in 2019, so in one year's time, we went to 1,203. Talk about exponential growth. That's insane. Yeah. So, and one place, by the way, if anyone's looking for more research um, on mindfulness, um, I recommend AMRA.org, A-M-R-A, the American AMRA. Mindfulness American Mindfulness Research, Associ- research Association. Okay, perfect. Um, and they put out constant, every, any basic, any new piece of research that comes out, that's where it gets published and put awesome. um, in, in, in addition to like the places that maybe, you know, uh, led the study. Um, but back to the study we were talking about with one time. So in the social cognitive and effective neuroscience publication, this March of 2020, um, they came out with new research that 20 minutes, a 20 minute introduction to mindfulness okay. helped individuals with no previous meditation experience it helped them regulate negative emotions and decrease physical pain. They used brain scans to document this evidence, and they didn't use any meditation during the study. Okay. And it was just after one 20-minute introduction. And they, they saw changes in the brain? Yes. One. That's, in, that's incredible. So when you say they didn't use meditation, so the, they, I think, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think what they did, and I don't have to study in front of me, but instead of using meditation, which is typically what studies, what the research and studies have been focusing on is, is meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Um, they showed the participants while their brains were, were hooked up and they were scanning their brains, yeah. <laughs> they showed them um, images and then gave them cues to either be able to um, accept it or, or to not accept it. So it was more of like that non-judgmental, a cue for non-judgmental acceptance 
or not. And again, I don't have the study in front of me. Yeah, and they, no, they just indicated real quick, you know, which one was their go-to. Yep. And I'm, I'm, there's a little more involvement there, sure. um, but it wasn't meditation. That's yeah, I guess so. That that's maybe one of my questions then. What's what's the difference between uh, meditation and mindfulness? Yeah, I think the, they're probably used interchangeably. At least in my brain, they are. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people do, but that's a really really great question to ask. I guess the best way I could I could explain it is like picture an umbrella. Okay. That mindfulness is the umbrella, and then the raindrops. One raindrop might be meditation. So meditation is a way to practice mindfulness, okay. but it's not the only way. Okay. So mindfulness is just this concept, um, again, of like paying attention. It's a special way of paying attention mm-hmm. to what's here now in a kind way and in a curious way. And what meditation does is gives us a formal opportunity to practice that. So gotcha. if you're going out to rescue somebody who's drowning in the ocean and you're going to swim to go get them, mm-hmm. but you've never swum before, you don't have strong swim strokes and you've never learned how to actually pull somebody up onto the side of your body and how to hold them in a certain way where they don't pull you under. If you go out to rescue them. <laughs> having flashbacks because I was a lifeguard for a few years. <laughs> that just, that triggered a memory that I haven't opened for a while. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you know what's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> What's going to happen? You can't do it. Both of you are sinking. Yeah. So like swimming in a pool though, Mm -hmm. practicing your swim strokes and then going out into the ocean and maybe practicing in the rough currents and being taught how to hold a person with like a dummy or a person Mm -hmm. who's faking it, but basically having some formal practice time where you're not in a crisis, where you're not trying to use your skills at the same time as learning your skills. That's what meditation is for. It's like experiential practice time of of that particular way of paying attention but meditation's not the end all be all because what you what you want is for this to serve you as you're living your life like not just oh i'm in my little corner and i'm just having my time now it's just for me and i don't want any (laughs) problems and i'm just working on relaxing like yeah that's great but your real life is not doing that 24 hours a day, seven (laughs) days a week. So how do you bring that mindfulness into your life? Well, partly by cultivating it and practicing it in a protected way during meditation, but then also learning how to transition and, and incorporate and keep that mindful way of being with you as you wash the dishes, as you argue with a partner, Mm -hmm. as you work on a project or face a difficult situation. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great analogy. Um, I couldn't have couldn't have come up with a better one. So, um, thank you. That's that's wonderful. So, transitioning then. So you do you do some work with um, students and school age students uh, and mm-hmm. incorporating mindfulness and meditation into uh, school life. So, can you touch on that? Like, what what do you do um, with school age kids and and the work that you do? Yes, thank you for asking that. Yeah. So. Uh, well, first of all, one of the reasons I like to focus on youth and I don't focus exclusively anymore, um, and this pandemic has actually um, opened up some new, some new opportunities, but I wanted to focus on youth because I think I probably needed exposure to the idea of mindfulness when I was a kid 
maybe at around age eight. And at the time, I didn't even think I ever heard that word. Like, I don't even know if it was out there, you know, when I was eight, but definitely I needed both to know it existed. And then also for somebody to like help me figure out how to practice it. Because even after I went and learned about it way after the Zen centers and the Hindu yoga um, teacher, I even took courses here, you know, at Penn and I just never could practice because by that point I was already diagnosed with ADHD as an Mm -hmm. adult. I had insomnia for years, was taking sleeping pills, was trying to balance my teaching career. So I was a teacher by the way. Oh yeah, we we didn't mention that, but yes. Yeah, I was an elementary (laughs) school teacher uh, for 14 years and an instructional coach in the most at-risk schools um, in Philly and Camden um, for four years. So trying to, to serve other kids and be there for kids while having my own kids, um, you know, just all of us can relate to all the stuff that we have to balance yeah, in life. Anyway, at, at the point where I was trying to come back to it, I was, I was really needing someone to, to be like a coach and help me just even practice it, not just show me how, but like yeah. help me to, to hold myself accountable to something and work with me and figure mm-hmm. something out and be willing to bend and blow and go back before I went forward, yada, yada. So this was my vision um, when I decided to, to, to resign from my last teaching position. Um, it was something I felt like I really needed to do for a few reasons. And so I felt like I really wanted to offer this to kids because I feel like kids are at the mercy of adults, right? We, the adults, yeah, it's true. Make, make most of the decisions for them. And I felt like kids with mindfulness, if they didn't know about it, it was either probably because of two things mainly either the adults in their lives didn't either know what mindfulness was or didn't experience any benefits from it. Mm-hmm. And that might be the same thing. So it's just a lack of understanding, a lack, a lack of education, or maybe they knew, but there weren't resources for mindfulness. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I just want to fight for this a bit more. And I put all my focus on starting with the kids thinking, oh, if this could just, if the kids could get a taste of it, it'll get everybody else hooked. And, and that was yeah. pretty idealistic actually and naive. <laughs> um, I'm still doing that, but I've opened up a lot, you know, and I'm, I now have to actually start sometimes with the adults, teachers or caregivers or parents. Um, I still love to work with the kids and I love to work with both. But in schools, I do a lot of work right now in Chester. So Chester Upland yeah. School District. I'm on a project, a special grant project to combat the school to prison pipeline in a Chester middle school. And Chester is another topic for another day. But yeah. I really feel strongly that mindfulness, um, and I've seen it with some of the kids I've worked with, could make a huge difference in their ability to self-calm, self-regulate, and choose words and actions instead of react. Um, And there's a lot that I'm not really getting into. I could name trauma. I mean, I could name a lot of parts of the inequity system, but bottom line is they need education about themselves Mm -hmm. and the power that they have. And I feel mindfulness is a big, big part of that. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, I've, I've been told and, and when I was growing up, you know, I was always told the only person you can control is yourself. And I think that it ties in so nicely with what you're saying is that, you know, you, 
and that's something that I've been learning recently is that you kind of can choose your reaction to with with a certain to a certain extent uh, about your surroundings. You know, if something happens, if taking that half second to say, "Okay, I didn't have any control of that. I'm not going to get super worked up about it because." You know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done anything about it. I don't know that that well, perspective that, for me has changed. Yeah. And you know, that is not just awareness, but probably education too. somewhere you learn that. Um, and not all kids are granted that opportunity. They might not have a person in their life to, to guide them that way. I, I think I picked up on that post-college for sure. Yeah. And, and also, um, part of what I teach in the the work that I do with kids, it's not just, I'm not just teaching them meditation, but like we were talking about John Kabat-Zinn and his teachings that he got and how he embedded that into a curriculum. So the curriculum um, is about being aware of thoughts and how to, and, and awareness of thoughts, awareness of your feelings and your body sensations. But I also weave in brain science because kids they, you know, how they often do we give the opportunity to, do we know what's going on inside? So like when you were talking about your reaction, you have a part of your brain called the amygdala, which is designed to keep you alive, but it only lets you fight, flight, or freeze. And understanding what turns the amygdala on versus how to turn on your prefrontal cortex, which is your executive functioning. So our higher thinking skills, our ability to focus, mm-hmm. you know, plan, prioritize, um, store in our memory banks, um, sustain attention, control impulses. That all comes from this part of the brain, yeah, yeah, which the, is a totally different part of the brain. And you can't just expect people to know intellectually that they should be using that part of the brain. They've got to actually use techniques and know how to, to regulate and switch. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes against that, our DNA. <laughs> I mean, yes. our DNA is, like you said, it's, you know, through evolution, it's written into us. We react with fight, flight, or freeze. If you're constantly needing to be aware of potential danger, of threats, mm-hmm. and if you're constantly then feeling emotions that are, that are intense emotions, even if it's intense excitement, that's not necessarily anger, you know, or necessarily fear. It can be positive excitement because you've got a big sports game coming up. Mm-hmm or a big sleepover, whatever. I mean, that <laughs> triggers the amygdala. And that amygdala is designed that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, there's only a problem if we don't constantly want to be fighting, flighting, and freezing, like if we're taking a test <laughs> yeah. in school um, or if yeah. we need to have a discussion with someone. So it is really empowering to, to have this education and to know that we're all human and not, not just like we're all human beings, we're not perfect, you know, but like we're designed a certain way for a reason. Right. It's just really fascinating stuff to me. I, I, I appreciate learning more about it. Um, I guess here, before we, before we wrap up, um, what would be one thing you think uh, teachers can start to do now to, especially with the, the distance learning that we're going through and the potential of having to continue that through the fall, what would be something that teachers can do from a distance to start to teach this or, or ingrain this or help kids with um, just being mindful? Well, it's my hope that if teachers also feel like there's a valid need for this, which I haven't run across a teacher, honestly, once they've been able to ask questions and 
you know, get their curiosity sated, if they believe that there's value in this type of education to advocate for some mindfulness training. And it starts, it can start with them, just like with our parenting skills. You know, we're teaching our kids by how we adults model behavior. So, you know, starting off with, it could be something basic like, you know, mindfulness to support the teacher. And then the teacher will most likely be able to turn that right around to their students. Um, whether it's, you know, just even adult concepts, um, they'll be able to, a good teacher will be able to turn anything into something that's accessible to, to the students they work yeah, with. Sure. Um, so I think, I mean, that's part of what I do is offer that, but there are lots of places. Um, and even right now during this pandemic, there are actually almost an overwhelming amount of options, both paid and, and free complimentary for, for teachers to find mindfulness resources. Yeah, but I'm also think. happy to, to point people to the right direction, whether it's to me or to another resource. Um, it's always good, I think, to have somebody to talk to, to say, well, this is really more what I'm looking for. And I've already tried this, so I don't want to do that. And I think this interests me the most, you know, so mm-hmm. I'm happy to help with that. If Yeah, if well, I, I appreciate that offer. Um, have you ever heard the book of um, The Miracle Morning? No. Okay. So this was a book that I read uh, a few few years ago, um, written by Hal Elrod, um, that goes through six, six uh habits that um, he did. He did his own research on uh, CEOs or company uh, owners, some of the habits that they do. Um, and he basically said, if you can do all these habits right in the morning and, and get them out of the way first thing in the morning, but one of them was mindfulness. And mm. uh, just back in November, December, there was a, a book of that series that came out. It was Miracle Morning for Teachers. So I, I, uh, yeah, I started reading that. I need to pick it up. I need to finish it. But uh, one of them was uh, starting your day with your students with these six things. And one of them was just a minute of, of mindfulness and a minute of yes. meditation. So um, definitely. Yeah, I'll, I'll link that and everything else that we've talked and- about uh, will be linked in our show notes. So and it's good you mentioned that because teachers more and more are moving to, towards something in the elementary classroom called mindful, uh, I mean, uh, morning meetings, which is a responsive classroom concept. But there is space now, you know, in the, particularly in the elementary classroom to incorporate that. Yeah. Well, then let's uh, wrap up. Let's go to what I call our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask everyone. And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation for teachers? It doesn't necessarily need to be along the lines of what you do, but just say, here's a book that every teacher should read. Oh, wow. Uh, anything by Paula Freire. Um, I would recommend Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Oh, okay. What is that one about? What is it not about? <laughs> Well, I, I did <laughs> I did my master's in social foundations of education. It was the first one. That was the first master's of its kind from Cal State LA. And it was really, uh, this book fit in so much because it was about our systems in schools mm. and then our systems inside the classroom, what we are aware of. So helping us explore what we're aware of, but then also helping us explore what we're not conscious of and how we are mirroring, mirroring bigger systems in a microcosm way inside our classrooms um, with preferences and predilections Mm. and habits and conditioning. And then how that leads to oppression 
for certain groups sure. um and and just even like for whole classes of people yeah taking trying to uh, do our best to take away our the the biases kind of right yeah i mean it illuminates the inequity um and when things are illuminated when there's light shed then we can start to to work with it i'm gonna take that right there that little quote and i'm gonna put that on the side of my door in my classroom or something like that <laughs> okay what would be another resource uh kind of more along the lines of meditation or mindfulness that you would suggest um teachers check out I think, um, well, two things. One, Mindful Schools. So Mindful Schools is an organization that is devoted to mindfulness in the classroom. Okay. Um, and they have some great research on there and examples of work they've done. And they have some wonderful um, short, you know, four-week, two-week, eight-week foundational type courses. And they also have a certification program. Um, hmm. And there's just a lot of options on that site. And then also I would say for a personal practice to kind of explore, there's an app um, created um, by a colleague and friend of mine um, called Insight. It's called Insight, Insight okay. Timer. Insight Timer. Huh. Timer. And it's just great because A, it's free. And there are a lot of options on this timer. So you could just use the timer. And there are all kinds of sounds, different kinds of chimes or bowls or mm. other kinds of sounds that you can use to start a little period of meditation if you wanted to and end it, or you can put them in increments. But then there's thousands, literally thousands of guided meditations that are all free from wow. all different people that have been vetted. And then there are even sleep stories. There's even just wow. music. Yeah, That's and it's all free. That's that's wonderful. I was gonna say the the two that I've explored, the two apps that I've explored, one is Headspace and the other is Calm. I'm mm -hmm. not sure if you've worked with either yeah. of those. Okay. They're great. People like them. Um but I guess they're the more popular ones, but um what you're I mean, I, I would say with really Insight cool. Timers, there's a lot of variety and there's so much choice in Calm and Headspace. It's really the same same narrators. Yeah, um, same true. guiders or facilitators. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't always work for everyone. And it's not free. <laughs> it's not so, free. Even yeah. though I think right now, both of them are offering um, free services to educators. Oh, okay. I'm not, not sure for that. how long that goes on, sure. but I'm 99% sure that both of those are. But again, not everybody responds because we're all, we're all different. totally different. Yeah. So Absolutely. just because some one of those doesn't work, by the way, mm -hmm. don't let that doesn't necessarily have to be the end of your exploration very true to that. What would be one piece of advice that you would give teachers um, regarding meditation or anything else? Since you've you had, you said 17 years experience in the classroom, um, what would be one, one piece of advice, especially to maybe younger teachers um, early in their career to help improve their craft? I would say to really actively cultivate self-compassion. That may sound cheesy or hokey, or maybe not. Maybe I'm just projecting, you know, <laughs> years of what it sounded like to me. Um, that was not something that w w sat well with me at all. Um, Self-compassion, you just mean loving on yourself, right? I mean loving, kindness, and deep empathy, deep understanding. And forgiving the yourself. same way that you as a teacher, yeah, have to, have to forgive a student you're working with because not just because you should, but because really 
You're not going to get something different if you do something the same way over and over again. But sometimes when you just allow a mistake to be made or something that's not pleasant to happen and say, okay, so let's let that go in a way. Let's forgive that. and Let's, let's start here. Let's start again, or let's start in a different way. But if you are too rigid and unyielding with the student, you're not going to get the, the results you want. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. There's no rapport that way. There's no trust. Um, there's fear, there's expectation, but I don't think you're going to go very far. Um, but just genuine understanding, acceptance, and let it go and move on. <laughs> yeah, move on in another way. Yeah. Um, that is that is really what I would encourage teachers to not just be mindful of, but to actively find ways to cultivate. Yeah, it's like and fortifying some people, themselves. Some people it comes really easy to, and other people definitely really struggle with that. So, um, yeah, everybody, you you know who you are if if that if that hit you pretty good. So, and especially if you're listening to that and rolling your eyes up <laughs> in your head, I would say ding 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 you you <laughs> perfect. Uh, all right. Well, um, I forgot my last question. <laughs> if anybody wants to reach out to you or find you, um, where would be the best place that you would like to send them? I'm glad you remembered this question, Jonathan. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so they can go to my website, www, was that three? Um, bubble dot three, <laughs> three W's. <laughs> www bubbles and flashlights.com. So yeah. bubbles is plural and flashlights is plural. Bubbles and flashlights.com. Yeah, we will, um, we'll link that in the show notes. And um, yeah, I wish I actually, I meant to touch on, on that site a little bit more because you, you've got some great resources on there. The one tab is just a list of all of the research that shows all the different benefits of it. So, um, and that's we'll, not all, but I, I, no, it's give, not. Yeah, sure. I give that, that's just, my website's not very professionally done. It doesn't, it's not very fancy schmancy. Well, I thought it was. Be done. But that piece <laughs> that I link on there is I use that in professional development a lot when I'm, um, you know, introducing mindfulness to teachers because like you and, you know, as we should be, we should be concerned about the evidence base for what we're offering students. So I let them peruse um, a lot of that research either on paper or on their computers to kind of look through it yeah. physically. Kind of come to your, your, somehow if you've discovered on your own, it's more powerful than somebody telling it to you. So it makes a lot of yeah, sense. True um, that. And I do, <laughs> true that. Uh, I do, I just want to touch, this is to wrap up, um, your little tagline there is empowering lifelong shine. Can you touch on what that means? Yeah. Um, I think that if we learn at a young age how to find our well of being, our well-being, mm -hmm. and we spend time there, we come back to it, and we come back to it, and we get better at making our way back to it because the more we do it, we know the more the brain does something, the stronger that part of the brain gets, for example, the more we lift a muscle, you can't stop mm -hmm. the muzzle from physically getting bigger if you work it out. If you dribble a basketball over and over and over again, you're going to get better at it. The more we come back again and again to this place of well-being, the more we grow it. And for me, I experience that as light. It's just, again, like it's being able to shine light or notice light 
in darkness and then it spreads, you know, and it grows. And if we do it when we're young, then we have it for the rest of our lives versus coming to that later in life. When you're already ingrained in your trenches and yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot harder to come to it, to find it, to be willing, to be open to it, but also you don't have as much of your life left. Mm. So why not, why not have it (laughs) lifelong? What, what, what is the reason to not? Yeah. Empowering lifelong shine. I love it. Well, Stacey Mandel, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this was a, a long conversation, but a great one. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much for, for hosting this and um, for doing your work that you do. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share more about mindfulness. Um, I'm glad we got to talk and I hope some people learned, learned something today. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. There you go. Thanks to Stacy for coming on as a guest. Uh, it was a great conversation, and the one nugget that I got from this conversation, you know, obviously I, I love the science behind it. I love talking about neuroplasticity and psychology and all that good stuff, but I think it's important to remember that the benefits that you see from mindfulness, they aren't necessarily going to be easy to observe, right? They aren't they aren't visible benefits um, like building a muscle, you know, when you go work out over time, you can actually see that you've gotten stronger, that you've built muscle and and there's a, there's a reward to that, right? Uh, Benefits from mindfulness aren't necessarily visual or auditory or tactile or taste or smell. They don't come through our senses. The benefits are in our thoughts and in our subconscious, which I think that's probably the hardest thing about making mindfulness part of our routine, right? especially for kids who are growing up in a world of immediate gratification, it can be a challenge for them to stick with it when they aren't easily observing the benefits, right? But that might be also the best argument for why they need these skills so much and why there's room to incorporate mindfulness into our teaching. So as we come to the end of the school year, or for some of you, the school year is already over and you're already into your summer and enjoying the nice weather, and the free time, maybe this is a time to start to begin to implement some of these mindfulness practices into our own lives so that when we come back in the fall, we are able to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, right? <laughs> um, you know, just just one minute of silence and reflection uh, at the beginning of a day or at the beginning of your class, that will go a long way. And if you don't believe me, check out the research on your own. <laughs> Stacy's got a great tab on her website filled with all the data as well as some of her other services and some of her other resources. So go check her out. She again is at bubblesandflashlights.com. So one final plug for me, check out our show notes page again, jabadoo.com slash show seven and go join our conversation and our group on Facebook. And until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, 
please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. And that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content. And it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.